Hi and welcome. My name is Dr. Paul Toot. And before we begin the second half of our interview with Dr. Wilmar Webley on the topic of COVID-19 global pandemic, I just want to remind you of a quick show note. This interview was recorded over Zoom, so I want to ask for your understanding on the little minor audio defects that you may hear during the podcast. And now let's move on to the conversation. Hi, my name is Dr. Paul Toot, and I would like to welcome you to the Common Sense Coronavirus Conversation Podcast. Our goal is to provide our listeners with clear information about the current pandemic, as well as public health information that will help to keep you safe and well. So thanks for joining us. Now let's start the conversation. So, but here's the thing. If you're not testing often enough, testing doesn't prevent transmission. Testing is the canary in the coal mine that tells you that you need to be looking in an environment, right? So testing has not no, no bearing on the transmission of the virus. The virus is gonna be transmitted based on people's behavior. Testing thus tells you what it is that that behavior looks like in a community. So for example, at our university right now, we're open we are having face-to-face classes for some of our classes. The vast majority are, 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 are remote, but I'm teaching a face-to-face class this semester, an immunology lab class. And so my students are getting tested twice a week oh, for wow. COVID-19, and I'm getting tested once a week. Why? Because if there's an outbreak, we want to catch it before it's a big deal. We want to catch it before you know hundreds of people are infected. That's why you test, and that's why you get on top of the testing, so that by the time you have an outbreak, you have testing again, and you can catch those individuals. In, in addition to that, we're testing our wastewater coming from the dormitories that the students live in. And what that means, you know, as, as happened at one university recently, that they, they tested the wastewater. And when they tested the wastewater, even though they were testing the, the, the students regularly, they hadn't picked up that they had students who were positive. And, but as they continued testing the wastewater, they found a positive. And after they found that positive, they were able to go now and taste all 311 students in that dormitory and found a clustering of students who were positive. And if they didn't catch it at that stage, it would have infected the entire building. Wow. So right? they prevented a major outbreak. Absolutely. Prevented absolutely. And, and that is the reason, that is absolutely the reason why we do this type of testing, right? We want to make sure that um, we're catching it before it becomes something big. Now, you said something in there that to the, to the lay person out there may sound a little strange. Why are they testing sewage material for the virus? Speak oh, good point. Yeah, because it has been shown, like all of the coronaviruses in the family, in, in the coronavirus family, that after a few days of having the virus, you start shedding it in your feces because the intestine uh, the intestinal cells have high levels of receptors for this virus. In other words, they infect the intestinal cells. And that is why for many patients, including especially um, uh, patients in nursing homes, one of the first signs that they have COVID-19 is diarrhea, right? They start having diarrhea. In fact, my, my wife is a, is a DNP, a, 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 nurse, a doctor in nurse practitioner. And she works mostly with um, nursing home patients. And one of the first patients she ever diagnosed with COVID-19 it was a patient who was 
for no reason just started having diarrhea, didn't even realize that she was having diarrhea, an older patient. And she sent out and an, an ordered a test and, and the patient was positive. And she's seen many, many patients that way that that is how you know. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because we look at, we, we spoke earlier about how this virus, the uh, SARS coronavirus 2 spreads throughout the whole body. And right. it's very interesting because of the symptoms that people present with. And it would be surprise a lot of our listeners to know that the majority of people, diarrhea is higher on the list than fever. Everybody Absolutely. goes around. Our, our it is, our our as, a, as a physician, it is so, I, I, I get, I get sort of, I pull my hair, the little that I have, I pull out because everybody goes around and they put more credence on some of these symptoms and without knowing the, the relevance or the, the chances that that's going to be the first thing they see. Absolutely. A lot of individuals go around and the diarrhea or the body aches or, the, or the, the shortness of breath are the things that they have first, even before they have a fever. Now, once you yes. have the disease and once you're displaying the disease, you will have a fever. There's like mm -hmm. a 90 some percent chance you're going to have a fever. I doubt you have, uh, uh, you know, COVID-19 without a fever, but it's not the first thing. That's and right. That's just an interesting thing. But, but moving right along, Doc. Um, tell me, what, what do you think of these trials? I know right now we have a lot of talk now about, oh, we have the trials, the phase one, the phase two, the phase three, and everybody's excited because something Moderna moved to phase two or phase three, Pfizer's moving to phase two, and everybody's excited because this is supposed to be the way we get out of this predicament. Speak to, please, uh, about trials, what they are, and how they work for our audience. So, you know, a, a lot of people are now hearing these terminologies um, that we that are used all the time in the pharmaceutical and drug industry, where essentially when you start off trying to make a treatment, whether it's a, 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 an antimicrobial drug or, you know, a drug for anything, you start in what is called a preclinical phase. And the preclinical phase means that you haven't reached human trials yet. You actually started in animals. So you start off in the lab, maybe purifying a protein or finding something that you think would make a good vaccine candidate. You know, for example, the, the spike proteins that make the crown on the surface of the virus are what the virus use to open that lock that I was talking about to bind to the cells to get in. So clearly that's a good target to make a vaccine against um, because it, it is necessary for the virus uh, and it not, it's not necessary for us. We don't need it as humans. We don't have it. And so that's a good target to make a vaccine. But the first thing you have to do is that you have to go into animals. You know, mice are the easy targets and ferrets and monkeys um, as you go up the ladder. And if it looks good in those, you get some sense of, okay, how much of it do I need? Is it safe? If it's not safe, you know it there in the preclinical trial. But then what works in, in monkeys and, and in rats and in mice don't necessarily work in humans. So you're going to what is called a phase one, you get FDA approval. Food and Drug Administration approval to move into phase one clinical trial. And phase one clinical trial, you're going to recruit specific people and you're going to give them specific doses of this thing. So you're doing what is called a dose es escalation. So for example, in the Moderna vaccine, they started off with a 25 microgram, 100 micrograms, and a 200 microgram dose of the vaccine. And you, the, 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 the thing about phase one is that it's small numbers of people very small numbers, typically under 100 people. 
Uh, and in these trials, it was a 45 people in most of these uh, uh, phase one uh, trials. Because what are you looking for in phase one? You're not even looking to see if the thing works. You're looking to make sure it's safe. Why? Because for vaccines, you're giving vaccines to healthy people. You know, unlike any other drug, as I, you know, as I've said to people, you know, you, you look at any drug out there and you see all this listing of side effects and sometimes the side effects look worse than the thing you're treating against, but you have a, you have a risk uh, 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 to reward ratio based on the condition of the individual. So, you know, you might have a cancer drug um, that cause significant liver damage and can cause other types of things, but it's either that or you die of the cancer. So you take that drug. For vaccines, they have a higher threshold for safety because you're giving them to a number one, you're giving them to way more people because mm -hmm. you're giving them to healthy people. And these individuals uh, have to be protected. So that's phase one. If phase one looks like it's good, that you're not having adverse events or the adverse events are tolerable based on parameters that have been set, then you're going to phase two. And in phase two, uh, you, what you're doing is that what you learn from phase one so for example, Moderna learned that their 25 microgram was too low, their 250 microgram was probably too high. So they went into phase two, um, phase two, three with a 100 microgram that it, it seemed to be well tolerated. The side effects weren't that bad. And you increase the numbers of people. You get into the hundreds now of people, maybe one to 200 people that you're putting in this. And what you're doing in this phase two, you're trying to capture the diversity of your community. You wanna get people who are younger, people who are older, people from different races, different gender, um, so that you cover as many people in the population as possible. So you start getting the feel of how they will respond to this, right? That's an important thing. But the main thing that you're still testing in phase two is safety. You're still testing safety. In fact, in every phase of clinical trial, safety is number one. Um, especially when it comes on to vaccines. But you're also now looking to see, do people respond to this? Is, are they making antibodies? Is their immune system responding to this thing that you're injecting? And essentially what you wanna do is that you wanna prime the immune system. You wanna show the immune system parts of this pathogen or the whole thing that's killed. And you wanna say, take a look at this, put it in your database. If you ever see it again, this is something that's not supposed to be here. You need to take it out. Right. And so that's the priming. That's what vaccines do, mm -hmm. you know, because if you got infected with most of these bugs, your body and you survived it, your body would have a good response against it. You would have memory cells and antibodies that are floating around. And that's what would protect you the next time around. And so then if everything goes well there, you're going to phase three. Now, phase three is your major clinical trial. This is tens of thousands of people, typically over 30, 40,000 people that you're trying to enroll. The more, the better the more diverse the group, all the better. Because at this stage, you're enrolling individuals, some of whom are gonna get your vaccinate, whatever the vaccine is, and others are gonna get a placebo. So this is, what, this is what is typically called a double blind case control study, where some individuals get the placebo, typically just a sugar water mix or, or saline, and others get whatever your vaccine is. Neither the patient nor the person giving them the injection know what they're getting so that you remove bias. So that's why it's double blind. So the physician doesn't know or the nurse who is administering it, neither does the patient. They have an independent third party who runs clinical trials and they're the ones who know 
what the patient number is, what the patient demographic, and what the patient is getting so that you don't have a bias at all. Mm -hmm. And so you allow this to run. And the, the important part of this phase three clinical trial is that you want people to be exposed to the infectious agent. Because if the pandemic is over, you can't do a phase three clinical trial because you need people to be exposed. You need them to get infected with the virus to see, are they protected from the symptoms of the infection if they have the vaccine versus having the placebo? Can you speak, there's a term, and I know this may be a little confusing for some of the audience, but there's a term about functional immunity versus immunity, true immunity. What's the difference between the two? Well, I mean, people like to say, talk about functional immunity in terms of, okay, what is your the ability of your immune system to respond to a particular agent that you're being exposed to? Mm -hmm. I don't make the distinction because the truth is the immune system is so nuanced, right? That you might have individuals, everybody has different levels of functional immunity. Uh, you might have, even have an immune deficiency that's mild that you're not aware of. That's gonna uh, affect how you respond uh, to an infection. In fact, what they've seen in the natural infection with SARS-CoV-2 is that they've seen a lot of people who got infected with it and didn't have an antibody response that could be measured. And yet they got over it. They survived the virus and they didn't have high levels of antibodies. So the question is, if you didn't make high levels of antibodies, this is a part of your, your, your adaptive immune response. How then did you clear the, the micro? How did you get rid of the virus from your body? And so now it becomes clear that you probably need more than just an antibody response to clear the virus. You need a T cell response as well. Because this is a virus, you need a, what is called a T helper one cell response um, uh, in order to help clear it, where you have your cytotoxic T cells coming and killing the cells that are infected with the virus. And that's how you get rid of viruses many times. They live inside of your cell. You're not able to kill them unless they get outside. Many times you need to zap them inside of the cell. And so that level of functional immunity that people sometimes refer to, it's pretty hard to measure because you have to measure both the humoral, that's your antibody, as well as your cellular immunity, your T cell um, uh, uh, response. And oftentimes that's very difficult to ascertain. I think the guidelines now, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken, for acceptability of a vaccine is going to be functional immunity. And they want it to be where, as long as you're not displaying um, the symptoms per se of the disease, then that's considered good enough. So versus not having the disease at all. And I think that's the distinction they're making versus someone who is immune and not have the disease versus function. Go ahead, doctor. Yeah, I mean, I think if you have, if you have any indication that you've ever had the infection, then the exclusion criteria for the clinical trial would exempt you from the trial. You wouldn't be able to participate. So they will PCR test you. And if I were the people carrying out the phase three, not only would I PCR test, I would also antibody test. Mm -hmm, exactly. You know, to make sure that people don't have IgG or IgM antibodies to the virus because you could have cleared it and test PCR negative, but the antibodies would say whether or not you've had it. If you've had, if you've had it, then you shouldn't be able to participate in these clinical trials. Just, just briefly for the audience, IgG, IgM, so that they understand what you're talking about. One is the memory, one is the effect. Right. So, mm -hmm. the, so, so you know, in your in our bodies we make these Y-shaped proteins called antibodies. And there are five different classes of them. You know, IgM, IgD, IgG, IgA, IgE. 
mm -hmm. um, antibodies, and they have different functionality. You know, IgM is the first antibody to be produced, right? So they, they're produced sequentially. And so when, after that is produced, over time, as the pathogen remains, you class switch to IgG because it is the most functional in the serum. It can get into your blood and float around. In fact, it's the only one that can actually cross the placenta to go from mother to baby, to go protect the baby against whatever the mother is protected against. And so if I see that you have IgG antibodies, I assume that you've had the infection um, over a, a particular time, a period of time, more than three weeks, uh, probably. If you have IgM plus IgG, I assume that you just, just had it and just cleared it or, or in the process of trying to clear it. Um, so it's a new type of infection. So with this now, with this, this trials, these different phases, different trials, it leads us up to the likelihood of us having a vaccine. Now, um, a lot of people in the media are pushing that we should have one by November. The time we're recording this is in the month of October, 2020. So that's a month away. Uh, how likely in your informed uh, analysis, because there's a difference between just an analysis and an informed analysis. Dr. Webley has an informed analysis. Based on your informed analysis, Dr. Webley, what's your opinion about the, the likelihood that we should see a functional, uh, ready to be delivered at a mass production vaccine? Yeah. Putting all those in there because they make a difference. Um, in, the, in, the, in this year, 2020, or when do you think that's gonna occur? Right now, I think we have probably about 11 or 12 vaccines in phase three clinical trial. Now it's important to realize that a lot of these that are in phase three clinical trial are in phase two, three clinical trial. They're overlapping. In other words, they don't yet have data from phase two have have we ever seen this before? Phase three. Have we ever seen ne this process this before? So, before? Yeah, so this never is brand happened. new as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. They're what they're doing is that they're overlapping these phases, right? Typically, you would have to show definitively that your phase two was safe, that it was efficacious before you were allowed to move on to phase three. In fact, Moderna moved on to phase two, moved on to phase three without ever having any phase two data. Moreover, they only had 15 patients from their phase one that had a good response to the vaccine. None of them were over the age of 55. And I think only one of them was uh, not, uh, or two of them were not uh, of Caucasian descent. Can you speak to, because this is so important because the media is turning this into a sensationalized uh, topic, but can you speak to why it is so important that these numbers be in the thousands for these stages or, or, or so that we know what's going on for such a wide right. pandemic that we have. Right. Why is that important? Why isn't this really if, good versus a thousand? If we weren't in a pandemic that is so dangerous and that's killed so many people, Moderna would never have been allowed to move on to phase two with such minuscule number mm -hmm. and with that lack of diversity. They have been allowed to move on and, and other vaccines have been allowed to move on to phase three. And in fact, Moderna just published their phase two data about three weeks ago. And they've been in phase three for uh, months now. The reason why it's important to have these large numbers is, uh, and this diversity, is that you wanna know who in your population might have adverse reactions to a vaccine. You know, If you're gonna be giving a, vac a vaccine to the entire population, 
you need to have people in there from all races, people from, from different backgrounds and genders, people at different age ranges. So, you know, you're, you're zero to five, you're five to 10 uh, range, and then up to 20 for the pediatric range. And then you want to see the young adults, uh, late teens, how they respond. And then for sure, since it's killing so many people over the age of 60, you want to see how those individuals respond. And Moderna just got their data on that. The good news is that that data looks good, that the people over 60, um, over 70 um, had really good response to the virus with, with very um, low, um, to the vaccine with very low um, uh, side effects. Side effect. Yeah, um, that we can see. But it, again, it's really important. Now, you might know this, but there are probably five vaccines, three from the Chinese and two from the Russians that have been, in quotes, approved for use. These are all military vaccines that were developed. And the Russian and Chinese government uh, mandated, I guess, that their military personnel take this vaccine. So that's how they're testing it. They haven't mm -hmm. even done a phase two. So they're going about it differently. They are going about are. it differently because they are in a totalitarian government. Exactly. They can mandate that their people take this. Again, this is military. And now they're trying to get um, different phases of clinical trials out to other people besides the military. But they already have, you know, as, according to the data that they have put out, uh, have been vaccinating their people. But again, you have about 29 um, uh, candidates in phase one. You have another 14 or 15 candidates in phase two. Um, and, you know, overall, when we look from the preclinical to the clinical phases, there are over 213 vaccines in development right now. Now, the question is, will we have one that we can look at the data and say it's efficacious before the end of the year? If we believe the, the FDA, if we believe Dr. Han at the FDA, what he says, he basically says, that because when they went back and look at the FDA data for adverse reactions to vaccines, they realized that the vast majority of those adverse reactions came within 42 days of getting the second dose. And if you go back and you look at even the Moderna vaccine and the, the AstraZeneca vaccines, if you notice where the side effects, they came mostly after the second dose, right? In the first dose, most people did pretty well. The mm -hmm. second dose, after getting the second dose is when people started having the worst types of side effects that they had. Mm -hmm. So essentially what the FDA said is that we want to give at least two months after the second dose for people to see if there are adverse um, events to any of these vaccines. Mm -hmm. Now, if we, if we use that timeline, at the very earliest that we can have data that says that we have a vaccine that seems to be efficacious and that is uh, uh, safe, would be right at the turn of the year in January, 2021. That's just the announcement Makes that sense. yes, we have something safe. And that's also given the fact that we have enough candidates in that stage three trials that have been exactly. exposed to the, to the exactly. Um, pathogen. And that's exactly, right. exactly. You need, so, you need to have enough people in there that you have a statistic, that when you do a statistical analysis, you can look and say definitively that this was effective in individuals who were exposed where the placebo versus the, the, the vaccinated group is concerned. So the reason, I'm the reason I'm pressing this point and I'm glad you're doing a wonderful job in explaining it is because I want the general population to understand circling right back around to those CDC guidelines. 
we these the, the hope of a vaccine is not a panacea. It's not as simple as saying we're going to get a vaccine, we're going to be good to go, we're safe. You want to still practice these guidelines of the mask, the social distancing, the washing your hands, not staying in a, a crowded area for a long period of time, doing things in the outdoors, because these are the things that's going to help us and hold us over in case the vaccine doesn't come through in January, because there's well, no guarantee that it will. Let's say, let's say we have a vaccine that we have an announcement in December or January that we have a vaccine or two or three. Mm -hmm. that is efficacious. Everybody's not going to get that vaccine in February. Exactly. It's going to take, it, it, it could easily take a year before the average person gets that vaccine because they're going to start with frontline workers first. Exactly. The ring of immunity. The ring Absolutely. of immunity. Exactly. Absolutely. You're mm -hmm. going to have the people who are most vulnerable and who are constantly exposed, medical professionals, first responders. Those are the individuals who are going to get the vaccine first. And over that time, you're gonna learn more about the vaccine because even after you start giving the vaccine, the more people get it, you're gonna now start seeing other side effects that they might not have seen in clinical trials. Exactly. And they might have to go back and tweak something, mm -hmm. you know, before mm -hmm. they can continue uh, mass producing and distribution of the vaccine. Here's the second thing that's important about this. Even after a vaccine is widely available, that doesn't make the coronavirus go away. We have vaccines to influenza, we have vaccines to hepatitis. We have vaccines to mums and measles and rubella. That has a, the only disease that vaccines have eradicated is smallpox. So the vast majority of vaccine preventable diseases, the disease is still around, which means that even after we have a coronavirus vaccine or two or 10, we're still gonna have people getting sick from coronavirus, going to the hospital. Some of them will, will live and others will die from this same disease. It's just the natural course of infection. Because here's the thing, a vaccine doesn't prevent infection. It prevents disease. And that's an efficacious vaccine. There's a difference there, mm -hmm. right? There is no vaccine that we have today that can prevent you from being infected with whatever you're vaccinated against. Because a vaccine just can't do that. In fact, the protection comes when the pathogen actually gets inside of your body. In other words, you get infected already. That's when the vaccine works, right? The vaccine doesn't work. In other words, it's not a shield that protects you and surrounds you and prevent you from having the pathogen encountered. It only helps you after you've encountered the pathogen, which means if you're supposed to get two doses of the vaccine and you only got one, you might not be protected. You might still get infected, which means that like most vaccines, it's not 100% protective right? It might protect 60% or 70% of the population if you have a good vaccine. But at the same time, the rest of people, even if they're vaccinated, might still get infections. And because they don't have enough antibodies or T cells or memory cells there, they could get infected. The other thing is, from what we've seen from the previous coronaviruses, antibody levels and immunity wane after about three years. And so it's very likely that we might have to get boosters on a regular basis three years or so after um, we've gotten this, this back. All of those are total unknowns and we won't know them for years. Exactly. Also the whole idea of possibly reinfections is one that's lingering. Um, how long does the immunity last once you have it? Um, does it go away after four months? Does it go away after a year? And, and even if it stays around, are those, uh, the immunity that you have, is it effective immunity? versus yeah. just saying that you have an immunity. So all That's those right. things, all those things are very, very important. 
So, you know, winding down, and we covered a whole lot of stuff, and I, I want to thank you again, Dr. Webley, for your time. Um, winding well, down, um, what advice would do you have for our listeners? And before you go there, speak to the fact, because at the beginning of this pandemic, it always hit me. You know, I always said it's a numbers game. The pandemic is a numbers game. We're running two, two parallel roads. One is the infection is working its way through our communities. That's one course. And parallel to that, we're trying to get a vaccine. So these two things are happening concurrently, correct? Now, That's we correct. hope we get the vaccine before the pathogen runs so far through our communities that people are dying and we've lost a lot of lives. But we, we are running to that either uh, uh, therapeutics that's going to help us. And I think vaccines are better than therapeutics because therapeutics, you have to be sick for it to benefit you. The vaccine, at least you're trying to prevent something from happening. But speak to the fact that even though the numbers we're seeing to the average person seem huge and large and enormous, that we are less than 10% of the population there That's are ninety percent right. of the population that are that are able to be a host for this virus. So That's we correct. cannot let our guard down. We are not even in the first inning of this disease as yet. Absolutely agreed. So far worldwide, we've only had um, about thirty-five million people become infected. Mm -hmm. That's a drop in the bucket mm -hmm. of a world population, right? In the U.S., we've only had just over seven million people infected. Yeah. And you're right that even in New York City, that got hit so hard, you don't even have 10% mm -hmm. of the population in general being infect, uh, uh, having uh, been infected. So we talk about herd immunity. And herd immunity is this concept that the more people you have in the community who have been infected and who have now recovered and have immunity against the virus, the less likely it is that you'll have transmission to a vulnerable, susceptible person, right? But typically, for a virus like this, as an R naught um, at the level that we have here, you would need about 65 to 70% of the population to be uh, uh, vaccinated before you could have any level of herd immunity that's gonna protect the vulnerable. So we're nowhere close to that in any place. Even in Italy, where we saw so many people dying and so many people being infected, nowhere close to that level of herd immunity. And so we, we have to be thoughtful. And so, you know, to go back to, to your question, I think the important thing is for us to do that which we've been told from the very beginning. Wash your hands, socially, physically distance, wear your mask, be thoughtful and caring towards your neighbors and the other people around you. Don't be selfish as a person. Your temporary comfort, your temporary fun is not worth the life of your neighbor. So you might be thinking, oh, I need to hang out with my friends and have a party. Um, or, you know, I, I, I just can't wait to do this thing or do this gathering, or um, I don't like wearing a mask. It feels uncomfortable. Your temporary discomfort is lending itself to helping somebody survive. Mm -hmm. And it could mean somebody's life. And so what my message is, let's just be neighborly. Mm -hmm. Let's be good people. Let's help out our neighbors who are susceptible, who are vulnerable. And those in our minority, African-American, Hispanic, uh, Native American populations who have multiple underlying conditions of diabetes and COPD and hypertension and heart disease, these individuals are four to five times more likely 
to be hospitalized after getting COVID-19. Let's protect these individuals and protect ourselves by being good human beings. And I think we can all survive this pandemic. Mask wearing, washing your hands, social distancing are still the most significant things you can do, even after a vaccine comes around. You, you do, these things can still be very effective in protecting you. Yeah, and help us help us to buy time. I mean, we, Absolutely. we, we need to give technology and science an opportunity to catch up with this new virus. Absolutely, the I agree. Virus caught us off guard, and uh, we we've done our best to try and keep, but we need to stay firm and strong. We can't give up. And the sad part too is the virus does not discriminate. The virus does not. Do. Right now, we have the most powerful man in the world by some some estimates is now infected by this virus. That's exactly right. So we cannot we cannot take for granted to the, the fact that we need to respect the virus, we need to be vigilant at all times, and we need, like Dr. Webley said, to do our best to protect ourselves and protect our neighbors. And by doing that, hopefully we can we can outlast this virus until technology helps us. Because the, the whole prospect of letting the, the, the disease run through society, the numbers of deaths that we would have is just, it, it's hard to imagine that we it, as it a- would be an, It would be a very inhumane thing as to a, do. Exactly, as, as, a civilized, as a civilized humane society, this is not what we want to do. Not at all, not, not at all. There's no we way want. that anybody who is conscientious and thoughtful um, would ever want to do that. Yes. Um, I mean, this, this virus, uh, doesn't care about our politics. It doesn't care about our religion. It doesn't care about whether or not we're anti or pro-vaccine. It doesn't care about any of that. Its primary goal is to survive and make more progeny, to make more of itself. And it will do that at all costs. If exactly. that means the death of the host, it will kill you in order to do that. Exactly. So this has been a wonderful, wonderful, informative talk on coronavirus, like we said, and this is, I'm so excited for this to be our first inaugural podcast for the Common Sense Coronavirus Conversations, because if anything, this was was bathing in common sense <laughs> and reason and logic. We kept the emotion out of it. And I yeah. think this is what people need right now. And I want to encourage our uh, listeners, if you want to uh, reach out to Dr. Webley, is there a way they can reach out to you if you uh, are yes. where they can My email you? address, um, Wilmore, W-I-L-M-O-R-E at U-M-A-S-S dot Okay, great. So uh, once again, uh, we want to thank everyone for taking the time to become informed on such a, 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 an important topic. And want to thank Dr. Webley once again. And as always, we want you to stay safe, stay healthy, and care about your fellow man. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tu. I appreciate it. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. And as always, remember to like and share this podcast with someone you care about. Have a wonderful day. 